The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi guys, it's Gabby and welcome to What's Gabby Cooking in Quarantine. If you're new here, I'm Gabby. I'm the founder of What's Gabby Cooking, a best-selling author and now podcast host. What's Gabby Cooking in Quarantine is your one-stop shop for all your food and cooking related questions. We'll be talking tips and tricks, how to store food, how to put together meals based on what's in your pantry and so much more. I'm also highlighting super cool companies at the end of every episode so we can support small businesses in the food world. So let's get right into it. This is What's Gabby Cooking in Quarantine. Hi guys, happy Thursday. I have so many fun things to announce coming soon. Today, two next week and one the following week, we have four more podcast episodes of What's Gobby Cooking in Quarantine before it gets a little bit of a makeover because quarantine is like still kind of sort of happening, obviously, like Thomas and I aren't going anywhere, but we are going to give the show a new name. It's going to get a slightly different format so we can just have a little bit longer conversations with some people. We are definitely not doing away with the Q&A. Don't worry. We're still going to do that every episode, but stay tuned. Some exciting things in the pipeline. But in the meantime, let's talk questions. Hi, Gabby. This is Sammy. I'm from the Bay Area, California. I have gotten your book recently and I have loved trying all sorts of recipes from your new cookbook during quarantine. In fact, I just made your jerk chicken burgers tonight and they may have been the best food I've ever eaten. But the first recipe I tried was my all-time favorite food, cashew e pepe. And I loved it. It was delicious. But I have a question related to melting cheese, I guess, generally and in your recipe in specific. I use Parmesan and Pecorino and use really high quality Parmesan Reggiano and then use some Pecorino from my freezer. And I'm not sure it was that high of quality. But regardless, when I melted the cheese into the pasta butter sauce, yumminess, it kind of coagulated and formed lumps rather than one creamy, smooth cream sauce, which looked a little different from your picture. So can you give me any advice on whether it's the type of cheese or if it's how long I melted it or any other cheese melting advice you have? cashew e pepe advice you have. I promise I'll make it again. Side note, totally different question. How much does the brand of tahini matter when you're making things with tahini? I got the Trader Joe's tahini, have been making some of your tahini recipes like hummus and your lemon tahini dressing. Delicious. But just wondering if there's different tastes based on the brand. Okay. Thanks so much. Hi, Sammy. Oh my gosh. You are speaking my language. A, those burgers are amazing, but B, cacio e pepe. Okay. So I don't actually think it was an issue with the cheese. I think sometimes, well, sometimes when you use frozen cheese, it can be a little funky, but I don't think that would be an issue in this recipe, especially because the cheese is grated so finely. I would say when you're making a cacio e pepe, if it's not smooth and creamy and cheesy and it's clumping a little bit, I think the step is to add a couple tablespoons of the starchy pasta water and thin it out a little bit. So while you're adding in the cheese into the pasta and you're stirring, 
stirring, like you want to stir, stir really quickly. Like that's the other thing when you're in Rome or somewhere in Italy and you're watching someone make cacio e pepe, when they add the cheese, they're like feverishly whisking it all together. So it melts really quickly, still over high heat. But if it doesn't melt, I would say add a couple tablespoons of the starchy liquid that you cook the pasta in to give it a little bit extra, extra like creaminess and you should be good to go. But I use Parmesan and Pecorino. I think that's the way to do it. I don't think you made any you know, no foul play there. You totally crushed it. So try it with the starch water. Let me know what happens. And if not, like you just come over and I'll make it for you for the foreseeable future. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Who's next? Hi, Gabby. It's Diana from Brooklyn, New York. I have been a fan of yours for so many years and I especially loved trying to figure out the clues for surprise vacation. There was one time that I was with my family in Florida and I was not talking to anyone at the dinner table because I was Googling where you could possibly be going. (laughs) That was a couple of years ago. And I'm also a huge fan of your snickerdoodle pondies. Anyway, my question has to do with utensils while cooking. So when I am cooking ground meat or raw chicken or really any raw meat and I'm using, let's say, a spatula or tongs, I feel the need to wash those utensils immediately instead of continuing to use the same tongs or spatula like throughout the rest of the cooking process. Because in my mind, it's like it touched raw meat and then I don't want it to touch my cooked meat. (laughs) So I know that that's not what cooks do. So if you could please give me some hints as to why that's not done or, or what happens to the utensil that makes it okay to touch raw meat and then cooked meat, I think I would feel much better about cooking in general. Um, I've been shying away because of all the dishes. And if I could reduce the amount of dishes, I would be so very grateful. Thanks so much and keep doing what you're doing. Hi, Diana. That is a very important question and something I think about all the time when we're doing Insta Live. So I know people do it differently in restaurants. Every home chef or home cook does it differently. Here's typically what I do. When I'm cooking, let's say, ground taco meat, I put some ground turkey or beef or chicken or whatever into a saute pan. I'm using the back of a wooden spoon to zhuzh it up and break it up. And then it's broken up and it continues to cook. I'll probably use that same wooden spoon all the way through until like three minutes before it's done. I'll chuck it in the sink and then bring out a clean spoon to finish it with because that's what I'll end up serving it with. And that I feel like answers your question. Like that way, I'm trying to think of if there's any cross-contamination that way. No, I don't think so. I think that would be the way to do it. I probably wouldn't go the full way with that spoon I used to break it up because there is raw meat on it. And while the meat itself in the dish is going to be fine, when you're introducing that utensil back into the pan, not the best idea. I mean, unless you have a stomach of steel like me because you've eaten all over the world and you no longer get sick. I'm just kidding. Don't do it. Don't do it. But I think it's okay to use it for the first half of the recipe and then swap. And also like just a word about utensils. I use a wooden spoon for the most part when I'm cooking in a skillet because I think it's the easiest on the actual skillet. But I do use tongs occasionally when I'm using cast iron or something like that. I won't use tongs when I'm doing it in like my all clad or something because I don't want to scratch the bottom of my beautiful, my beautiful children. That's how I feel about my pots and pans. They're a very important part of my family. But great question. And thank you for calling. Hi, Gabby. Sorry. Hi, Gabby. This is Allie from San Diego. My husband and I moved into a new house about two years ago. And about a year after we moved in, an unidentified plant started growing in our backyard. Turns out we have garlic growing in our backyard. We have a huge amount of it now, probably about 50 heads of garlic ready to be picked 
have no idea what to do with it. We're planning to try the whole roasted garlic recipe in your new cookbook, which I love, by the way. But just curious if you have any ideas on what to do with so much garlic. Thank you. Hi, Allie. Oh my gosh. Wild garlic in your backyard. I will be there in three hours. That's how long it'll take me to get there from LA. And I'm willing to take 25 bulbs of that garlic off of your hands. You are very lucky. Here's what I would do. I would say the roasted garlic from the cookbook, the whole head is a great way to use a couple of them. Once you have that roasted garlic, you can pop them out of the like garlic paper and freeze them, either smash them up or keep them whole, put them in an airtight container, pop them in the freezer. I think that is, you know, one of those really, if you have roasted garlic on hand and you fold it into a pasta or you put it, you slather it on a piece of chicken or something before you roast it or put it like under the skin of a chicken before you roast it. That's like a super hot tip that would rock anybody's world. The other thing, there's a garlic sauce on my website, which is basically oil, garlic, and some herbs. You could make that and freeze little bits of that. That would be incredible. Or you can make like a big batch of it and just keep it in the fridge for a couple of weeks. And the last thing I would say is I would just smash all of it, combine it with olive oil or whatever kind of oil you use frequently and divvy it up into like ice cube trays. I feel like I need more ice cube trays. We talk about things that freeze all the time. I really need to start prepping better and doing these things. And that way you can take out one little cube of olive oil infused with fresh garlic and use it for basically every recipe for the foreseeable future. I can't imagine one savory thing that wouldn't benefit from that. So that would be my, you know, like trio of ways to use it up. And that way you have fresh garlic on hand basically for the entire year. Also, that's so cool. I wish something like that would happen in my house. Hi, Gobby. My name is Nicole and I live in Portland, Oregon, outside of Portland, Oregon. I have been reading your blog since your sister was a student teacher at the school that I taught at in the same department. So for a really long time. And she spoke so highly of you and I went to your blog and I was like, this is awesome. You somehow managed to meet my vegetarian lifestyle and my husband was um, not a vegetarian. So anyways, I just had a question for you about different types of oil substitution. I just made monster cookies for my five-year-old son and I tried to make them healthy because that's what any good mom would do, right? So the recipe called for almond flour and I substituted regular flour because I couldn't find almond flour. And then I also called for coconut oil and I substituted olive oil. And it was just really crumbly. I was able to get it stuck together because of the peanut butter. But I'm wondering, did I make too many substitutions? and I suspect that what I should have done is use butter in place of the coconut oil. Let me know what I did because this isn't the first time I've tried to make substitutions like this and the cookies have gotten a bit crumbly. So thank you. I love your show. It's a highlight during my runs um, and I really appreciate your approach to food and to cooking. Thank you. Hi, Nicole. Oh my gosh. It is so good to hear from you. And what a small world. I feel like Anya, my sister for everybody listening, probably has never heard an entire episode of the podcast. So at least there's one of us that's listening. Okay. So let's talk about oil and flour substitutions. I actually think the issue with the cookie problem you just ran into is not an oil issue. I think it was a flour issue. We'll get to that in a second. As far as oil alternatives, when a recipe calls for vegetable oil or coconut oil, like here's what I use interchangeably, vegetable, 
coconut, grapeseed, avocado, sunflower oil. Those are all fair game when it comes to baking. Coconut obviously is going to give you a little bit more of a coconut flavor, but all of them work really well. Olive oil also has a little bit more of a pungent flavor, so I don't bake with it unless I'm making like an olive oil cake or bread or something like that. But all the other oils are pretty mild. I think you can substitute one for one. There are also other oil substitutions like applesauce, butter, fruit and veggie purees, stuff like that you can use. That requires a little bit more of a science. It's not a one-to-one ratio. Here's what I'll say though. I th- And you should listen to the episode I did with my friend Grant a couple weeks ago about flour. Subbing all-purpose flour for an almond flour is not ideal. It's not something I would advise because the properties are totally different. There's no gluten in almond flour and there's gluten in regular all-purpose flour. So automatically you're going to get a more crumbly cookie and it's just not a one-to-one swap. I think a lot of times when people are developing recipes and they specifically call for almond flour, you got to do it. Like I think that's just kind of what you do. Otherwise, like pick a cookie recipe on my website because I'll never call for almond flour. I'll always use all purpose for the most part. So I think that's what can get tricky because when you're substituting those flours, that changes the consistency of the cookie and would make it a lot more crumbly. But go check out the episode that Grant and I did because I feel like he breaks down a lot of flour intel. Like he's very smart. He knows all these things. So I think that might be helpful. But you sound like an incredible mom. And obviously, you know, my sister. So I love you and I would have eaten the cookies regardless. All right, guys, that's a wrap for today's podcast. Let's talk about a super cool company. So let's be honest, I've been craving a trip and I don't think that's happening anytime in the near future for me. And so I was like going through my phone, reminiscing about all these old trips. And I remembered when we were in Napa half a year ago or something, we went to this place called Model Bakery and they have the most incredible English muffins on the face of the earth. And I was like, oh my gosh, you can order them online. I totally forgot about it. Did I do it? Absolutely. They currently ship all over the country. It's overnight or two day air. You have to submit your order on Saturday. So it ships on Monday and you can get the best English muffins delivered straight to your door. So if you want to make egg sandwiches or you just want toasted buttered English muffins, it's possible. You can all, I mean, they also have cookies and granola and things you can order, but like, just promise me you'll get the English muffins because they are amazing. And if you live in the Bay area and you are driving through the Napa area and you want to stop at model bakery, there's also such thing as a chocolate chip croissant bread pudding situation. I think that's what it was. It blew my mind. So there you have it. Today's small company to support. They're an amazing family-owned business. Check them out. Order some English muffins. Eat them in my honor. And I will see you guys or talk to you guys on Monday. All right. That's it for today's What's Gobby Cooking in Quarantine episode. Be sure to tune in for new episodes on Mondays and Thursdays. If you have any questions you want answered, give us a call at one 338 4429 and leave me a voicemail. Or if you know a super cool small company that you want to be highlighted, let me know in the voicemail as well. Make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen and follow along with What's Gobby Cooking on Instagram and Twitter. And for more recipes, check out my website, whatscobbycooking.com. See you guys very soon. Bye.